Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. Icons, we got to talk about Cozy. I love anything cozy, and specifically I want to talk about Cozy, the North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture made for modern living. Now, Cozy strives to provide the best furniture shopping experience with elegant, high-quality products, super-fast delivery, and easy assembly. Cozy offers beautiful, customizable sofas and sectionals, so if you want to get something for your living room but you're not sure if you just want a sofa, a love seat, or if you want a sectional, they have all of it, and they are uh, made to adapt to your space. This means customers can add seats to their sofas over time. So if they get one thing, you can always add to it in the future. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, some wall shelving. I have a credenza from there as well as uh, they have TV stands, accessories. I also have a rug from there that I love because it's washable. I can throw it in. Uh, and everything's designed with purpose. So when designing its furniture, Cozy focuses on the customer experience to make sure it offers a product that's super easy, like I said, elegant and durable, easy to assemble, I should say. And uh, the products will fit the person's needs. You can also get outdoor sofas and coffee tables. And so it's not just indoor. And uh, Cozy also opened its first retail space on Queen Street in Toronto to push the experience to the next level. So you can check that out. So transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy, C-O-Z-E-Y.com to start customizing your furniture. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino. I'm so excited. We have a best-selling author of such books as The Tipping Point, Blink, so many others. I think a six-time best-selling author, maybe more. I apologize if my number's off. Uh, but uh, I'm one of the millions who have, have eaten up your books. You also have a podcast called The Revisionist History, which is in season seven right now. Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm I'm a little nervous. I feel like oh, I feel it. like you're so much smarter than I am, and no, I don't want to no. be a dummy in this. No, 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 no nonsense. Okay, so this podcast revisionist history. I want to mm-hmm. dive right in because this season there's an episode about Will and Grace, which I found so fascinating, and you call it uh, the most important sitcom in history. Can you expand on that a little bit for our audience? Yes. Well, okay. Am I engaging in just a little bit of hyperbole? Maybe. But, you know, famously back in, I think, 2012, when Joe Biden was um, was vice president in the Obama administration, he gives this, he goes on Meet the Press and he says, Will and Grace is, I've forgotten exactly the language he uses, but he basically says, the reason the American public came around on the subject of gay marriage is Will and Grace. And I wanted to kind of do a show in which I investigated whether that was true. Was he just saying that or is that true? And I became convinced the closer I looked that it is true, that Will and Grace, so it's part of that cluster of sitcoms on Thursday nights on NBC, right? Seinfeld, uh, uh, Will and Grace and Friends. That's that power lineup. 
And it's right in the middle. It comes out in 98. It's right in the middle of that. And it's very easy to lump them with those other two, you know, funny people in New York City apartments. But it's not. It's different. And I kind of, it's a fundamentally subversive show. And it's doing something. We forget what the kind of late 90s are like. And so I talk about how, for example, if you look at the way gay people were portrayed in Hollywood films in the 60s and 70s. Um, it was a, like a famous study that was done, looked at 32 films where there was a major gay, major gay, 36 films where there was a major gay character. In 17 cases, the character was murdered. In 18 cases, the character committed suicide. And in one case, the character was castrated. That's how Hollywood dealt with gay Someone characters. And along comes and then, so we move into the kind of 80s, and the situation gets a little bit better, but there were rules about how, implicit rules about how gay characters could be portrayed on television. One of them was, you, your, your gayness was always a problem that had to be solved. So your, your friends were always, it was always like an issue that the whole, the plot revolves around, how are we going to deal with this massive, you know, catastrophe in the middle of our problem, lives? Right. Problem, right. Problem. The a gay person could never be the central character. A gay person could not move in gay circles. All their friends had to be straight because everyone's sort of trying to resolve this. And he couldn't talk about sex ever. He couldn't imagine that they might have any kind of romantic, right? It was just this thing. So Will and Grace comes along and breaks every one of those rules. There, not only is no one getting murdered or committing suicide or getting castrated, but they're at the center of the show. Their gayness, Will and Jack's gayness is not a problem to be solved. It doesn't occur to anyone that's a problem. It's just a thing, right? It's just a, right. They're just normal people. They have gay friends. They talk about sex. They do. And that is revolutionary. Totally yeah. revolutionary. I mean, I remember I, I grew up in Ohio and I was closeted at the time of Will and Grace starting. And I remember being a teenager and it was on the air and taught. I remember family friends were in love with these characters of Will and Grace. And even as a young boy, I was able to internalize that of like, oh, maybe that'll make it okay for me to come out of the closet eventually down the road. Yeah. And I can trace it so clearly back to Will and Grace. And I'm so fascinated in the episode you talk about. The, the sex issue, because you talk about the creators of the show, and uh, I believe they had a conversation with Joel Schumacher, who who had yeah. essentially said, no, no, forgive the language, but butt fucking in the, in the yeah. show. And uh, I, it's fascinating to me because I, I do feel like that's one of the few places we've yet to go on TV, not the necessarily butt fucking specifically, but I think when it comes to gay characters and gay storylines on TV, oftentimes still they're almost desexualized a little bit. And so... Mm-hmm. I, as a gay person, I almost feel like that's one of the places we still have to go. Does yeah. that make sense? That, yeah, that was the last. So it was pretty clear when they were doing that show that, first of all, it's in the era of network television shows. So there's no, you can't go on the cable and like, so you're, you're, you're playing the middle America and they're trying to do this incredibly difficult thing, which is to get middle America to understand that, to be gay is as normal as to be straight. Like a gay character is just, that's not the, and if you want to do that, you do have to, they did have to be, they were very aware of the fact that they, there were limits to what they could do. So they could talk about sex, 
But yes, there's a famous thing, thing where one of the characters, one of the creators of the show has dinner with Joel Shoemaker and he says, just don't make it too butt fucky. <laughs> Meaning like, guys, if you want this to play in middle America, you cannot go too far. Right. right. And I, I'm glad they did. You know, you can't do everything all at once. Right. Um, right. And they were very, and I think it's really, it's funny when you're talking about how Will and Grace made you think that you, that it was possible to come out. Will is a really, Will's a really crucial character because Will, you know, the other revolution was if you looked at what gay men in particular, what they were allowed to be in Hollywood, they weren't allowed to be corporate lawyers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They weren't allowed to look and sound like Will, right? Will's like, Will like really, you know, the character of Will kind of must have blown a lot of minds in middle America. He's just like a, He's a Manhattan corporate lawyer who just, it just so happens he's gay, right? It's like, that's, that's a, that's a revolution. Yeah. Do you, you also talk about in the episode how that won't happen again because of the way TV is fragmented. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. There's a reason. There's two reasons why Will and Grace is so revolutionary. One is, is that I've said it breaks the rules about how gay characters are allowed to be represented on television and that's really revolutionary. But the second thing is, it breaks the rules. And also, it's a show that is being watched by, I mean, I think it had 17 or 18 or 20 million viewers at its height. That's a lot of people. So it's still in an era of television where we're all watching the same shows. So shows can have a social impact. You know, we love all these shows on Netflix or Hulu or whatever, Apple TV today, but nobody watches them comparatively. A hit on Netflix is a million viewers. Right. A hit back then was 20 million viewers. Even on, um, on network now, I think if you have something like 4 million, you're considered a huge yeah. success, yeah. which is nothing compared to what was happening at that time. I, I always felt like when, so I'm older than you, but both of us are old enough to remember this era where I remember I was obsessed as a, in my twenties with, um with Melrose place. And I used to write this, update Melrose place update and email it to all my friends. Uh, this is like the early days of the internet. And the thing about that is I think back was I was absolutely secure in the notion that all my friends were watching Melrose place. You couldn't do that today. Cause I can't write right now. I'm watching the old man on Hulu. I can't write an, an old man update like once a week. Cause I have no idea. As far as I know, no, none of my friends are watching. There's no shared television show mm-hmm. anymore. I right? know. I remember walking through Manhattan on the day I was on a date. I remember this on the day, the final episode of Seinfeld aired and it was a Manhattan was a ghost town, ghost town. It's insane. That never, that's inconceivable. It is inconceivable today that a city would be a ghost town because of a television show. Right. And there are certain moments I think of back on and, and the last sort of cultural moment I remember where it seemed like at least everyone was watching was there was an episode of Grey's Anatomy back in season two, which Grey's Anatomy is still on. And, and I think it yeah. does well enough. Uh, but in season two, there was this Catherine Heigl, Izzy character who cut the LVAD wire. And it it felt like everyone was sort of still talking about the same thing. And, and that's when I was listening to this episode, I was trying to think back, like, that was a moment that a lot of people talked about, but still, I don't think it had the same cultural impact as, as something like Will and Grace or friends back in the day, but we just don't have that experience anymore. And it just is gone. And 
we have our little segments that we can go on social media and our friends are sometimes watching the same things because we're following people with similar uh, likes and dislikes, but shows just don't have that anymore. And it's sort of sad to me that we don't have yeah. that. I, I've sug- I'm glad to hear you say that because I feel sadness about it too. I feel yeah. the same way about, and music too. Like, you know, when there's a, there was a, there's a long stretch in, popular music where we we're all listening to the same thing and music's like we're all buying the same album at the same time and we're just got you know and all that's gone as well there's just that that notion of a kind of large shared community around um entertainment is gone away and it's i think people don't realize what that felt like because if they've never experienced it and you look at the numbers now i mean you mentioned music sales and sometimes i'll i'll look at the charts or billboard or something and the number one album will sell 90,000 copies. And it seems so small to me. I mean, 90,000 copies or or books too. I just came out with my book and I, I sort of, I started to look at numbers and learn kind of what books sell and they don't sell what you think they sell. I mean, your books sell like fucking hotcakes, Malcolm, but you know, a a large portion, (laughs) a large portion of the books though. It's like, the numbers are small because we just, there's so much stuff for us to consume as consumers. And yeah, we yeah. don't have that shared experience. I was thinking about this today. I was talking about someone about um, Dick Gregory, who was a comic, you know, a, an African-American comic in the sixties and seventies. And I was comparing, he's sort of like, if you had to compare him to someone contemporary, he's the Dave Chappelle of the sixties. His comedy was very, was sort of very much rooted in what was going on in society. And, and, um, but Dick Gregory in 19, whatever, 65 is 10 times bigger than Dave Chappelle is today. Dick Gregory, Dick Gregory was like huge. You could go to anywhere in the country and say the name Dick Gregory and they would know exactly, and they would have heard his, you know, listened to his comedy album or read his, when he wrote a book, I think he sold 10 million copies of a book he wrote. Uh, autobiography, his first memoir, which he wrote in the early 60s. It's insane. I mean, no one has numbers like that today. Like, it's so, it's such a strange, um, I kind of, I don't know. I don't, it's just weird how different it is. It's weird. Malcolm, have you always been a super curious person? Like when you were a kid, were you curious? I guess. Yeah, I think I was, well, I grew up in the middle of nowhere. So I grew up in a tiny little farming town in um, Southwestern Ontario. And we didn't have a TV and our neighbors drove a horse and buggy and had no electricity. And, you know, it was like, I grew up sort of in, so I was like aware that there was this world out there that I wasn't a part of that was really exciting. And so I think it was this incredible advantage because I was like, oh my God, can't wait to get out there because there's clearly something going on that's really fun and different that I'm not, I don't have access to. Um, and so I think that fueled it, this kind of isolation of my childhood. Was there a moment in your career? Because I, I look at all of these incredible books you've written and the success of your podcast, which is consistently in the top of, of the podcast charts. Was, was there a moment, whether it be the release of something or even just something personally where, where you felt success does that make sense? Or like a moment where things felt like they clicked? Yeah. Um, I guess. I mean, I don't, uh, 
The issue is whether they click for me, not whether. So there are things I've done which I don't, which I haven't liked that maybe have worked or the reverse that I've really liked that haven't worked. And I've realized, oh, the part of it that matters to me is not how they received. It's how I feel about them. Some things feel really interesting and cool. Can you give me an example of both? Like what, what's something you look back on? You're like, I love that, that thing that I did. We did. uh, Yeah. All the time. Uh, there've been some, so some episodes of revisions history that fall into this category um, that are kind of, we did one. I don't know. I've always loved it. We did one at the end of last season about, about the idea that dogs, Dogs were better detecting COVID than te- like the, the fancy scientific tests they give us. If you train a dog, they can like just, they literally can just like sniff your hand. And if they sit, if they've been trained right, they sit down if you have COVID and they keep going if you don't. And they're like really, really good at it, like way better than in some cases, better than the tests. And we went to this little place in Alabama, in the hills of Alabama, where they train dogs to sniff COVID. And it was just like so. And the, we, the, the episode that we produced was to, one of my favorite episodes ever. It was just so like, it had like, do, you know, cute dogs barking. It had like, it was topical. It had, it was fun because it was in Alabama. I mean, everything about it was just sort of clicked. And I was like very, I don't know whether the audience liked that episode more or less than any other episode, but I know I liked it because I felt like it was a nice, simple story, well-told with cute dogs. I mean, yeah. who's arguing with that? Who doesn't like, love a cute dog? Who, who yeah. doesn't love a cute dog? Have, like, there been so, like, to, have there been ones that you haven't gotten to click? Like whether they've been put out there or not, are there ones that are have been left on the cutting room floor or that have been ideas that you, you can't quite figure out the end? Yeah, sometimes. Well, there's one we were just, just today, we were doing a last episode of this season and we recorded it and realized it's not ready. It doesn't click like click yet. And I got to kind of figure out how to make it click. Um, so there's that. Sometimes it's, we struggle a little bit um, and takes, and sometimes you get lucky. And sometimes there's an episode I did a couple of seasons back, which is all about Elvis. Whenever Elvis sang the song, are you lonesome tonight? He would botch the lyrics in the bridge. He didn't always like screw them up. And the, this sort of, psychoanalyst wrote this famous paper, which he said that there's a reason why Elvis couldn't get the lyrics right, because the song was forced him to access something in his own life about his failure in relationships and his complicated relationship with his mother. And it just was too overwhelming for him. It was sort of a hilarious thing. Cause there's these, if you go online and you watch YouTube videos of Elvis singing, are you lonesome tonight? It's unbelievable. He just goes he gets to the bridge. No, I need to check it out. He starts babbling. He can't do it. So I, I, I struggle for the longest time to figure out how to make an episode out of that. And finally, I ended up going to Nashville. And I had Jack White sing the song for me and explain why the song's hard. And then that was amazing. And then I went and I sat down with this, this a woman named Casey Bowles, who's like a session musician in Nashville. I said, can you sing it for me? And she sings it for me. And then we start talking about, it's all about like, are there songs that you forget the lyrics to? And then she sang a song that she had written about her own mother. She said, I always forget the lyrics in the middle. And she sang it. And then she forgot the lyrics in the middle. And it was so, it was so freaky and like 
if you listen to the podcast episode, it's this amazing moment and everyone starts crying and it's all about her, her, you know, this complex relationship with her mother. And like, and the reason she can't sing the part of the, she forgets the lyrics to that part of the song is it's just like Elvis. It's too powerful and meaningful to her. And it was this thing where like the episode did not work until I just flew to Nashville and without, I was like, Jack White, sing it for me. He sings it. It, that starts to click. And then Casey Bowles sing this other song about your mom. And then without realizing she was going to do it, she starts crying and forgets the words. And it's like, I was like, oh my God, this is the most amazing episode. Oh, Am I sure the tape recorder is running? You know, like <laughs> that's always so stressful. Yes. We have to take a quick break here. We'll be back with much more from Malcolm Gladwell. As always, I want to remind you to find me on social media at Danny Pellegrino on Twitter and Instagram. You could pick up my book. It's called How Do I Unremember This? Wherever books are sold, there's also an audiobook. You can listen to Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, Revisionist History, wherever you listen to podcasts. I want to thank ACAST. And finally, I want to encourage you all to check out the YouTube channel if you want to watch these interviews. It's youtube.com slash Danny Pellegrino and the number one. Subscribe. I'm also on TikTok at Danny Pellegrino now, posting clips of the interviews. All of the places. Okay, with all of that paperwork out of the way, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Icons, when picking a commerce platform for your business, you have two choices. Frustration, ah, or sales. I prefer, don't you? That's the sound you'll hear when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell, online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Now, Shopify is the best all-in-one commerce platform capable of handling your business's complexity. No matter how big you grow, step up to Shopify and harness the best converting checkout and the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands like here at Everything Iconic. We use this as well, but also Ruggable, Allbirds. I love my Allbirds. I love my Ruggable. Brooklyn and so many others. I can say from experience, it's really easy to use. You're probably thinking, sure, but migrating is going to be a headache. But Shopify's app store has the migration apps you need to migrate everything over super easy and conveniently. And I feel like after months of hard work creating the look and feel of your brand, it can be soul crushing when your commerce platform makes it blend in with the rest. But when you switch to Shopify, you'll regain control of your brand's look and store functionality thanks to stylish, no-code themes. Truly could not be easier your customizations, and advanced shopping features that keep your customers coming back. So stop leaving sales on the table. Switch your business to Shopify and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their business. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash everything iconic, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com slash everything iconic, shopify.com slash everything iconic. I want to talk to you a little bit about social media because uh, the way that social media works is, especially I think with someone like you, oftentimes people take your clips and I've seen interviews you've done on TikTok or people will take passages from your books and and sometimes they'll attribute them correctly or, or understand them correctly. And then other times I'll see a quote attributed to you and I'll be like, oh, they don't really understand that. I, Particularly, I think that happened with your 10,000 hour rule oh, where yeah, yeah, yeah. it started yeah. to get picked apart so many different ways. And and I would often see it picked apart. And I'm like, did anyone read the book? Like, did you understand it? And I I wonder, what do you make of sort of 
the the way that people does that bother you when you see something taken out of context or misinterpreted or how do you feel about it? Mm, I feel you like that's care. the bargain. That's the social media bargain. So the social media bargain is you're going to reach a way bigger audience more efficiently than you could ever have imagined, but you don't have the you're not going to have the space and time to explain yourself fully. So your what your hope is is some portion of those people who you reach will be intrigued enough that they will follow up and experience the real thing. That's what you that's what you hope for in social media. If you so you can't like I think a lot of the people time people have frustrations with social media is when they are asking to do something that it can't do. You can't do a complicated argument on social media. That's not what it's for. It's not, a, yeah. it's not, I'm not dissing Twitter when I say that, but that's not what Twitter's for. You want a complicated argument, you got to read someone's book or like listen to them for an hour. You, um, but Twitter will alert you to something that will pique your curiosity about something. That's what it's for. So I think as long as I try to keep that in mind. And so I was like, I don't really mind, you know, people get stuff wrong. It's fine. If they just, learn about me and then then they have the freedom to go and explore it in more depth and they can get it right then but it's you can't ask too much of you can't ask twitter to be this kind of perfect representative of a, of a complicated idea right uh, i was watching an interview you did with oprah and i always Love. get nuggets from her that I, I don't know. I get those nuggets. And she's another person who always is showing up on my whole TikTok is like inspirational things. So I'm constantly mm-hmm. being fed like a random little quote from Oprah. And I, I, I don't know, maybe this is a silly question, but is there something you learned from her or, or are there, is there something you've learned from somewhere else? I, I feel like so many of us learn from you. And yeah. is there like a bit of nugget or information you've learned from someone recently that you could share? From Oprah, so I, I've had actually. Can I name drop? Yeah, please. I, had the, I actually had. I've had the pleasure of meeting her. Um, additionally, from like I had lunch with her a couple of years ago. One of the great moments of my life. Sure. Um, and I was on a show years ago, so I've seen her in a variety of contexts. And one of the things that's really interesting that I sort of realized, which is maybe obvious, but maybe not, is. She's really, really smart. So she's smarter than everybody else. And so the amount of thought that goes into being this thing, this character she created called Oprah, who is largely authentic, largely authentic, but you know, it's a persona that she's an extraordinary amount of care and attention went into that. Um, she's thought long and hard about um, the best way to be herself to her public. Um, in a really kind of brilliant way. And I, I really respect the kind of, my sense of her is like, it's a lot, in other words, the whole process of when she sort of speaks to people and reaches people, that's a lot more of a kind of carefully thought out, sophisticated um, process than we imagine. She's not blurting that stuff out, you know, um, that was really interesting. That sort of reminded me of, if you're going to play this game, you have to understand that it's really hard. It takes a lot of time and attention and thought. And if you have a platform like that, you can't treat it lightly. It's a, not, it's a responsibility. You know, a lot of people are looking to her for clues as to how to live their lives. And you can't, 
you can't blow off that responsibility and be a, you know, and just say whatever comes to mind. And there are people who do that, you know, who, who don't take that responsibility seriously and they do can do a lot of damage in the world. But I was just, I just was so impressed at sort of getting a little glimpse about the, how much kind of work is going on under the surface. Uh, what else do we have to look forward to this season of revisionist history? I know I loved an episode. You talk about Ohio. I grew up in Ohio, sort of right. Hey, in where, between. where, where? I'm from outside of Cleveland, but I went oh, to college uh, right in Akron, Kent State University. Um, oh, you so you're it was sort of wait. like in those places. You're you're so you're. We have a whole. Did you listen to the episodes all about Akron? I did. Yeah, yeah it's Akron, are, and it originally <laughs> starts in Cleveland. Cleveland which is, yes. Yeah. Where are you, Shaker Heights? Where are you? Where are you from? I'm from Solon, Ohio, which is right uh, near Shaker Heights. Yeah, right yeah. Near, okay, okay. I know that part of the world a little yeah. bit. Um, yes. So, and then, so you heard our our little parody of "My City Was Gone." Yes, yeah. I had forgotten that Chrissy Hind wrote that song about Akron. I didn't even. It never clicked for me. Either. I'm sure I've heard that song before, but until listening to the episode, I was like, "Oh, okay, yeah." Hey, you, you, I think you're too young for that. That song goes way back. I remember getting back to where we started. I remember her being in Friends. She played like a, uh, a musician with Phoebe, that character played by Lisa Kudrow. Yeah. yeah so that's yeah, where yeah. I feel like I first learned of her. From. Okay. So I'm going to do the, I'm going to play old man here. Um, you won't know this because you're too young, but it, like in the kind of early 80s, she's huge. She's like, She's like, there's a stretch where Chrissy Hine and the Pretenders are like the great American rock and roll band. And so I grew up, that song, My City Was Gone, was like a, it's one of the songs of my college years. It's like an iconic song. And I thought it was about a kind of, it's a city about, it's a strong about a city that has kind of disappeared. My city, you know, she goes back home again and home's not there. I thought it was about a myth, you know, a kind of mythical city. Only when I did this episode did I realize, oh, no, 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 she's talking about Akron. She's from Akron. She goes back to Akron. And Akron's not the Akron she knew anymore. It's this lament for Akron. And we have this episode. So I think it's kind of a really fun episode yeah. on, in the season. Season is episode two that ends up being all about Akron. And we got um, one of my friends, Dave Hill, who's this comedian, and insane guitarist. And we sang this parody of My City Was Gone. And then Dave did this five-minute guitar solo, which we actually put on the YouTube channel, which is hilarious, of him, like, you know, doing the, doing the, because it's a, you know, it's obviously a guitar-heavy, uh, but um, we, uh, yeah, yeah, so we have a little celebration of Ohio, of uh, of that end, that corner of of of, uh, of northwestern Ohio, um, northeastern Ohio, I guess. Northeast, yeah. Um, and um, we have an episode about the original A Star is Born, Um which I got obsessed with and um, uh, about how there was a, in the original screenplay, there was this crucial scene written by Dorothy Parker that was deleted. And I do believe it or not, 45 minutes on the significance of that deleted scene. <laughs> so it's, like, it's totally intense. That was really fun. What did you um, think of the new star is born? I have to get your opinion on that. I haven't listened to that star is born episode yet, but. I love, I love it. I mean, yeah. you know, I'm I'm an aficionado of all four. The great one, the campy one, is Chris Christopherson, Barbara Streisand. It kind of can't. It's kind of can't be touched. It's such pure seventies. It's just genius. What do you did you learn in the making of that episode? What it is that makes that story endure so much? 
Yes. So that was a big part of our my, our, my fascination with that. Ep- so why has this movie been made four times? And it's there's sort of many reasons, but it's this, it's because it's a double narrative. It's, it's, it's a, a Cinderella and a reverse Cinderella. So the Cinderella narrative is the unknown who gets plucked out and achieves stardom. And then, so that's one part of Star is Born is always about Cinderella's story. But then overlaid with that is a story about a star who's fading away. And so you have the star who's going from greatness to obscurity, who's in a relationship with a star who's going from obscurity to greatness. And the story is about what happens when their paths cross, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that is the central narrative of that movie. And there's something about that narrative that we, every single generation returns to that fundamental narrative. Like what happens? How do you cope with the fact if you, when you fall in love with someone whose trajectory is the opposite of yours? Right. Wow. Um, it's a great, it's just a great, great question. Um, particularly when the person ascending is a woman and the person descending is a man. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you have all kinds of questions of male pride in there. Um, Malcolm, not to change the subject, but I was just looking down my notes because I've been so trying to stay present. Um, and I want to ask you, and I hope, I hope you don't mind, but I'm curious. I mentioned the 10,000 hour rule and this idea of hustle culture. I'm so fascinated by how it's shifting because when I was sort of coming of age and and in college back in Ohio and stuff, there were these movies like the devil wears Prada where the, the whole idea was the hustle culture is what gets you ahead. And I know a lot of people have been critical of your 10,000 hour rule. And I'm just curious what you make of the shift of culturally. It seems like now it's, um, or I don't know if, right way to say it is we're going in the opposite sort of way, but it seems like the younger generation is saying, no, we don't want to be a part of this kind of hard. Mm. I don't know. Am I making any sense? Yeah. Um, So the point, the larger point that I was trying to make two points with that 10,000 hours argument. One was to remind people that in cognitively difficult disciplines, you can't get good overnight. So anything that's challenging, you know, the, 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 the significance is not the actual number 10,000 hours. It's a metaphor. It takes years, not months to master. And so we need to be, part of that was we need to be patient with people who are trying to do something hard. You shouldn't, if you're a record company, you can't give up on someone after their first album, which, and, which we do now. And we didn't do back. People forget. I was, you know what I was, do you know what, uh, uh, you know, the example, Fleetwood Mac's Rumors, one of the greatest albums of the 1970s. Do you know what number album that is in the discography of Fleetwood Mac? 14. Wow. It's their 14th album. And that was their, yeah. yeah. That was their breakthrough. So their label stuck with them for 13, through 13 failures before they got Rumors. It, there is no way in a million years that a contemporary record label would stick with an artist through 13 14, players. Yeah. 13 to get to 14. It it's a, it's even amazing. I mean, that, now that you're mentioning it, this whole thing that's happening with Kate Bush and stranger things and, you know, this independent artist, and now she's having this huge cultural moment from the song and suddenly everyone loves it. It was a song that came out in the eighties that did well, but now it's having this whole other mm-hmm. Renaissance. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's fascinating. Yeah, that she, yeah, she was, she's, Kate Bush is a, is a voice from, 
from my college years. That's like, that's how old I am. Um, But uh, no, but like, so there's that. And the other idea that was important with 10,000 hours was the idea that if you go, if it's going to take a long time to master something hard, then you need a community to help you. Mm -hmm. You can't do it by yourself. Um, And I wanted people in that book to think a lot about what communities, what support communities look like and to be willing to offer support to people to realize they need help to, um, to achieve their kind of potential. Um, to, so I was trying to move people away from this very deeply individualistic explanation of success. Um, so that was, you know, so when you understand that that's what I was trying to do, then you realize, oh, it's not really an argument about whether it's 10,000 or 9,000 or 11,000 hours. It's about those other ideas about patience and community. That's so fascinating. Uh, what's, is there a next book for you that you have planned? Are you working on another book? I am. I'm, um, I'm always, um, got something in the back of my mind, but I have a, I want to do this book about, um, the, uh, the first black mayor of LA, Tom Bradley. Um, and what he, I'm in the middle of it and what he, um, he's a really interesting figure because he comes along. You think about it. You know, LA's never more. Are you in LA? I'm in LA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So LA is a city where the African American population was never more than 15%. And a guy comes along, and in 1973, a black guy who's a son of sharecroppers from the South, who grew up in the poorest part of LA, is mayor and mayor for 20 years. And so how he pulled that off is an incredibly interesting question. So I'm sort of, that's one of the things that's, and it's also weirdly the story of, in an important way, the story of modern Los Angeles, but why it is the way it is. Um, and uh, I've, I always, I've always found LA to be this kind of deeply fascinating place. So that's what I'm in the middle of it right now. I can't wait. I've always been such a fan of your writing. And, and so I, I just want to thank you. And is, is there any advice you have for any young journalists out there or any young writers out there that you would be able to impart? Uh, I guess my advice would be... Um, pay more attention to what you have to say than how you say it. So having something um, that you really want to communicate, that some, some thing that's your own, that's some obsession, some anything, that's really the, that's the most important thing. Um, there'll always be people who can help you with how you present your ideas, but it's really hard to find someone to help you with your ideas. So you should start with your ideas. What is it you want to say? Are there something something you know that you want to share? That's the question you should start with. Yeah, kind of follow that obsession. I love yeah. that. And I think that's why I love your work so much. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. 
ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. Malcolm, thank you. I want to encourage everyone to check out season seven of Revisionist History, which has more than 162 million downloads since 2019, which is crazy. Uh, Malcolm, the last thing I ask all of my guests, uh, and feel free to just not answer this if you don't have an answer, but I ask everyone their favorite Mariah Carey song. I love Mariah Carey. I don't know if you have a favorite Mariah Carey song, I but I have no, to I ask. I don't, um, I don't think I have a Mariah favorite. She, I was, I have to say, I never did the Mariah Carey thing. How dare I, you? I know, I know that's, <laughs> that's, a, that's a, that's a heretical thing to say on this podcast, but, um, I don't have one. You it's just, that's just a miss. We'll say fantasy, Malcolm. We'll say fantasy. That's a good one. I, okay. I'm going to add that for you. And maybe season eight of revisionist history. Maybe you find out why you have yes, it. I can devote it to an examination of that question. Yes. All right, Malcolm, thank you so much for taking that. Truly such an honor and a pleasure. And I hope I, didn't come across as a dummy. <laughs> no, he didn't. That was really fun. Thank you. Thank so you, much. Malcolm. Bye bye.